Hi, it's Lynn Galadner, and welcome to the Make Meaning Podcast. I'm a writer and entrepreneur, and through decades of writing articles for magazines and newspapers and authoring books, I've learned that we succeed through inspiration from storytelling and deep and mutually beneficial relationships. This show began in 2018 after my father was diagnosed with a terminal illness, and I wanted a way to capture his stories and record his insights. It's grown since then to share stories of how people around the world make meaning from very ordinary pursuits. Now I focus on sharing the stories of writers, authors, and those in the world of publishing to learn how and why we create stories that help us make meaning from the mundane. I'm a former journalist and marketing entrepreneur, and I've been teaching writing for more than two decades. As a writing coach, I help authors build their brands and share their words. If you'd like to write with me, check out my offerings at lynngaladner.com. And you'll find more episodes of this podcast at makemeaning.org, as well as on every podcast platform you can think of. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts. Thank you for tuning in to the Make Meaning Podcast. Now, on to the show. Lisa Pierce is a writer with a passion for smart, funny love stories with well-deserved happy endings. And I'll share a little secret. She's a friend of mine and part of a wonderful critique group that I've been part of here in Michigan for many years. I just love Lisa's writing. And now I've invited Lisa onto the Make Meaning podcast to talk about and celebrate the debut of Love at 350 Degrees, a lesbian romantic comedy slated to be published by the Dial Press any day now. Lisa is also the author of Love and Other B-Sides, a rock and roll rom-com, and the novella Eros and Psyche, a myth of love lost and won. Lisa has acted professionally in San Francisco, produced TV and radio programs in Detroit, and is currently a creative director for an international marketing agency. A Harvard graduate with an MFA in acting from the American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco, she now lives in Metro Detroit with her partner, not far from their three grown children, along with their beloved cats and way too much yarn. Hey, Lisa, welcome to the Make Meaning Podcast. Well, hello, Lynn. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. I have been waiting for this episode for what, a year, year and a half? Like, however long I've been reading in our critique group any pieces of your novel that, of course, I love. And then when you got your book deal, so I was like, okay, great, let's get her on the show, you know? Okay, but I do like to begin by asking my guests about their earliest memory of writing. So what what is your earliest? Uh, I grew up in Richmond, Virginia, mm-hmm. and my dad was a former teacher who retired early, and then my mom had in her previous life, been a Methodist deaconess. So she was mm. a working gal. The mm-hmm. two of them married rather late. So she was 39 and okay. my dad was 50. Okay. So she stayed at home with me and she was also a writer. So okay. she had a typewriter on her desk Aww. that moved from being a manual to an electric over time. And at a certain point, she allowed me to start playing with it. And oh. so I wanted to do what she was doing. She was writing short stories and things and getting in uh, magazines. Oh, my God. And so I started with, like, poems. Uh-huh. And, you know, that that must be where it all started. That's so cool. That's really neat. Do yeah. you have your mom's writing? I do have some. So she, when she passed away, had um, already moved in with my brother, and the two of us are going through things. And I knew she had been published here and there. Mm-hmm. And I found one of her pieces in a copy of True Romance <gasps> oh my God. back in the 60s. And so first off, my mom being this, you know, religious worker all here is in True Romance. Oh, my God. <laughs> but the other thing was that the plot of it was this very suburban, you know, uh, sheltered woman marrying mm-hmm. into 
an Italian family. <laughs> and how do you adjust to that and have getting to to a detente with her mother-in-law, the very, oh. you know, outspoken and, you know, yeah. stereotypical. Yeah, yeah. So that delighted me. That, that just delighted is so me. cool. Yeah. Oh my God, I love that. That's really neat. Yeah. That's so funny. So, you know, it's interesting is that I've I've known you only as a writer, but of course, preparing for this episode, I had to discover that you've had this illustrious national career on stage. And so I want to hear all about your acting experiences and how those experiences inform your writing now. Yeah, I was in plays all through college and all this. And then when I graduated, honestly, kind of in a panic of what the heck do you do with a history and literature degree, right, really, right. I was desperately trying to get into acting schools because that all put off the decision for <laughs> two or three years. Well, that didn't happen. Uh -huh. So I started doing local performances and this sort of thing. And then when my partner got a job in California, we moved to San Francisco, I decided, all right, I'm, she's got enough where she can, you know, mm -hmm. be the single learner. I'll dive in. Uh -huh. And after a couple of years of that, I wanted to go to grad school finally uh -huh. for real, okay. you know, not just as an escape. So sure. I got an MFA through the American Conservatory Theater and I continued to do a lot of musical theater. Okay. So that was my my main gig. There wow. was a company that started around the time I was in school that focused on lost musicals. So oh, my gosh. Irving Berlin, Cole Porter, George Gershwin, the golden oldies where you knew the songs but had no idea what the show was. Okay. The shows were generally very threadbare, uh -huh. just so you can get people, you know, yeah. you can get to Ethel Merman singing, Yeah. you know, yeah. rhythm. So we were in San Francisco for... 16 years. Okay. My partner's originally from Wyandotte, Michigan, uh -huh. and her family was done in Oakland County. Mm -hmm. And so we decided, let's move to Michigan. Mm -hmm. So with that, then there was really not the same kind of theater community that I had in San Francisco. Sure. And so it really meant that I was walking around. It's like, I got to do something yeah. creative and Luckily, we landed in a place that has amazing public libraries. Yes, true. And also, it kind of intersected with my daughter finally respecting me for some information that I had, which uh -huh. was, what was it like in the punk era and <laughs> starting days of MTV? <laughs> what was music like back way back then? Mom? Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Taking her through that, I started to get more and more into music, mm -hmm. more and more into music research, biographies, all this business. Mm -hmm. And that turned into a story idea uh -huh. about, you know, classic rockers got terrible writer's block, is really stuck and intersects with a new fan of his who's mm -hmm. going through a lot. And, you know, she becomes his muse. Okay. He becomes her headache. Okay. And then that was my first book. Which was called? Love and Other B-Sides. Love and Other B-Sides. And that came out when? 2013. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I know. And that was how I found our writers group okay. as well, because okay. I literally had kind of a stack of papers and it's like, I don't know what to do oh. with this first draft. Okay. So a friend found found the, the group out yeah. here. So that really made sure that I was able to get it into a state where I could unleash it on the world. And Now, is that book agented? It is not. Okay. So, yes. Yeah, so... The one hand, I'm fortunate to have a dear friend from my Virginia days who uh -huh. is a published author and was in, in New York and telling me kind of how how to approach agents and this sort of thing uh -huh. and did get some good feedback right. from a couple of them. Okay. But after a couple of years, just did not mm -hmm. find someone to represent it. So I decided, you know, this is 
not getting any younger. Uh-huh. Um, to give you an idea, it was centered around this rock star releasing all of his catalog on essentially an iPod. Okay. Okay. So yeah. Histor- now, historical fiction now, right? Precisely. Yes. <laughs> yes. So I self-published using Amazon. Great. Um, wanted to make sure it was the best I could. I got a, a another dear friend as a copy editor. Nice. That's cool. Yeah. So yeah. That that worked. Uh-huh. Uh, and put it out there. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I felt like I had succeeded because I sold to somebody I didn't personally know. <laughs> I love it. That, I love it. That was my criteria. It's like, yeah, I didn't burn down the doors and make a ton of money, but someone who never met me and didn't feel guilted into buying it, bought it. Bought the book. So I'll take that. That's a testimony. And then you wrote a novella after that, um, before the one that we're going to talk about in a moment. Yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. So actually, that manuscript started well before Love and Other B-Sides. And it started backstage mm-hmm. in a show I was doing in San Francisco, where I literally had an hour off stage and mm. didn't and wanted to kind of stay awake. But yeah. And I've always loved Greek myths. Uh-huh. I always thought that the women got the short end of the stick. Always. But there was one story where the it was a happy ending, and okay. that's Eros and Psyche. Ah, okay. And so I just thought, hey, why don't I make up this this madcap, you know, backstage adventure of their filming a version of Greek myths, including this, uh-huh. and this girl who had never gotten a chance to really be a star uh, gets pecked out mm-hmm. and immediately, you know, catches the eye of this drop-dead guy who's uh-huh. playing Eros. And the longer she's there, the more she realizes that everybody in the production is kind of lining up to be the gods. Oh. And so on. So that's such a cool idea. Yeah. My daughter is 27. <laughs> uh-huh. The manuscript is 26 and a half years old. <laughs> so it did not land. But the thing was, I had to, I wrote a version of the myth for myself is almost like a guide to, you know, this is my source material sure. by this fake, you know, Greek scholar okay. who put it together. And after a while, I'm like, well, that could stand on its own. Yeah. And so I put that out on Amazon too. Nice. And now it's, <laughs> it is an international seller, Ooh. bestseller, but for whatever reason, I sell about one copy a month or okay. so uh, with no marketing. Uh-huh. Um and it's usually to somewhere in the in Europe. It's That's like, so cool. I've been paid in in euros, in pounds. I got it in <laughs> rupees once. Oh my know. god! So some somehow it spread out across the world, which is also kind of this strange, wonderful thing. That is so cool. I can't wait to see if after your new novel comes out, the others start to sell. Like I'm just eager to see. You know. I know. I know. I I keep talking about you know it'll expand for my legion of fan. <laughs> You know, to to be able to to get to more folks with, For uh, sure. you know, with this being more visible. So awesome. So before we talk about that, though, I want to talk about your process. I know you love creating witty, clever dialogue. You're really good at it. And so I, w- I always wonder, do you hear the characters' voices uniquely and then translate that to the page? Or do you develop the characters strategically so the dialogue is easy to write? You're talking as if I have a plan. <laughs> that, that's you, your mistake. Um, <laughs> Frankly, with it depends on the story. So for Love and Other B-Sides, the, the main character just clicked in from a sound. I just knew, you know, the guy was, you know, had a Southern accent and mm-hmm. he'd been through a lot and he, you know, and he just had a really fun way of putting things. Uh-huh. And so that would kind of generate, people would have to react off of that. Okay. okay. Which in some ways... 
Yeah, he's the center of that story. Yeah. And he, you know, gets called out for it sometimes, but he just does his thing and doesn't really care about other people. So that okay. kind of made sense. Okay. Then with uh, the current book, mm-hmm. it was more like, okay, stuff has to happen. Mm-hmm. And these people need to find out about each other and figure out, you know, they're thrown into a situation where it's a bunch of strangers, essentially. Yeah. And they have work to do, but they've got to find stuff out and how mm-hmm. to do that. Mm-hmm by talking to them. Sure, sure. So that then became sort of, a lot of times my characters would pose somebody a question and mm. just have to answer it. And then that would kind of start to fill in okay. all of the the mesh around the story. Okay. Move the story along. That's really, really cool. So I know you said that your goal in both acting and writing has always been the same, um, to connect with an audience by sharing a story that resonates with you personally. And so that echoes the advice I hear from so many successful writers, write the book you want to read. Mm -hmm. So do you find that to be a motivator for you? Like like the stories you're telling, which are all really unique, are the books you want to read but aren't finding on the shelves or, yeah. Yeah, I I agree with that because, I mean, there's twofold to that. One is, you know, this takes a lot of time, a lot of time apart from people, a lot of sort of personal journey. Yeah. Why not do it about something you're interested in? For sure. You know, really, really interested in. Mm -hmm. And then the other is just sometimes kind of the frustration of seeing what other people have put out there. And it's like, well, wait a minute, you haven't talked about this. Yeah. So, you know, besides being about a rock musician, so many of those stories about somebody who's like off their nut on drugs and, you know, have done so many terrible things to people and yet they're still an icon and buy the t-shirt. Whereas this guy is like, no, he put the work in. These guys were dedicated to each other uh, and he got respect. And, yeah. and I felt like that was important. For sure. There. Yeah. So now with Love at 350 Degrees, one of the key things is the main characters are a bit over 40. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. to my mind, at my age, I'm like, oh, that's pretty young. Yeah. Not according to the genre. <laughs> I mean, it's like I opened a wing of the Smithsonian somehow. <laughs> Oh, to let them know yeah. that, you know, folks over 40 want to fi- fall in love, yes. want to, you know, achieve their career goals yeah. or make a change or whatever. Yeah. And so to have that happen and to not divorce their experience from a level of reality was mm-hmm. important for me. Because yeah. sometimes in the the romantic comedy genre, there's a lot of quirky coincidences <laughs> or, you know. Yeah. Oh, is it? Oh my gosh, I can't believe that. You know, and yeah, I can't believe it. You know, yeah, I yeah. wanted them to have mortgages to pay and kids to put through school and, sure. you know, the risk of reputation of making a change and, you know, not being able to get the work they used to have. So to sure. have that as part of it, I thought was important. Yeah. All with the knowledge that by the end of the book, it will be okay. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, that's also kind of an element of me looking for the book that hasn't been written. Mm hmm. Um, is to find something that that does resolve and it's happy. It is good. And so hopefully that's what I'm ac- accomplishing in yeah. the books that I'm doing. I love that. Uh, you know, my novel, Woman of Valor, is about an Orthodox Jewish woman who chooses to be Orthodox. She didn't grow up that way. And she likes it. And I'm like, okay, how many books have we had that people don't like being Orthodox so they leave and it's horrible and it's misogynistic and whatever? 
yeah, that's a valid story, but it's been told so many times. Mm -hmm. And so even though I left orthodoxy, I wanted to write a story where a character was like, yeah, there are challenges, but I'm still going to, I'm going to choose it, you know? Yeah. And I just, I think, I think that's really good advice is to write the book you want to read. I think that's, Mm -hmm. that's phenomenal. So, um, okay. So let's talk about love at 350 degrees. I have been lucky to have a ringside seat to this book, but I want you to tell our listeners how it came to be. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So um, you may have heard there was a pandemic. Oh, really? Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you may have heard that many people lost their jobs. Well, I got yes. laid off pretty early on. And so on the one hand, I had been writing quite a bit anyway and was kind of looking to write, you know, something new. Mm-hmm. On the other, in my head, I'm like telling off the people who let go, <laughs> you know, in, in so many different ways on those power walks that we were all doing to get outside, yes. be healthy. Yes. And so one of them was like, oh yeah, well, I'm going to go and write a book. Take that. And then after this whole thing, I'm like, oh my, I, I wrote a book. You manifested. I love this. Manifested. But anyway, so along with that, a good friend I made on the circuit of selling Love and Other B-Sides went on to uh, get her own contracts with um, Hallmark Uh and other publishers for Mm -hmm. her. Um, She was doing cozy mysteries and Mm -hmm. some other things. So Mm -hmm. uh, Tracy Gardner-Benno, she's now writing as Just Sinclair as well. I'm getting a massive plug for her because she's got a book coming out the same day my eyes come too. We will put her in the show notes, I promise. Yes. Great. So she had said, what do you think about writing for the romance market? Mm -hmm. And I said, I can't write romance without swearing. Okay. And she basically said, try. Uh (laughs) Um, And so Hallmark at the time was trying to open up to more varied stories and particularly LGBTQ romance line. They didn't need a false manuscript. They could do three chapters in a synopsis. Okay. Being allergic to synopses, it was the first time I did one, but okay. I did, and I put that together, presented it to her editor, okay. who said, no, thank you. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah, but uh, Tracy's agent mm-hmm. was open to reading it, and mm-hmm. then she agreed to represent me. Oh, my God. That's like a dream come true. It's- like no writer ever said in the history of this, like, I love your story because it's just so serendipitous and lucky and amazing. Yeah. Well, and that's, you know, in some respects, I, I, I say that knowing that often once you do get a book, a lot of people come to you, what's your secret? What did right. you do? Right. And it's like right place, right time. Yep. I knew people. Uh, well, and even then, I mean, I used to, I still do know people yes. and that didn't turn out early, right. 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 You know? True. But in this case, not only did my agent really enjoy it, and encouraged me to write the rest of it. Sure. Gave me that time. Mm-hmm. And let me blog with that synopsis. It rattled off pretty quickly. Love it. Love that. Yeah. Ate crow for a month. <laughs> then she started to rep it. And she was saying, look, it's it's Thanksgiving. People close down during the holidays. I'll throw out a couple of queries. Sure. You know. She started getting back some, no, no, thank yous. Within three months, Dial Press came back and said we're interested. Nice. And because they are looking to expand their shelf of romances and romantic comedies uh-huh. to include not just LGBTQ stories, sure. of which there are legion that have mm-hmm. been told, but also sure. just kind of the people who never have gotten their turn yeah. in these kinds of stories. Sure. Plus size people, neurodivergent people, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of different things. And they were very much looking for this. So it was, again, mm-hmm. right place, right time. Yep. And um, I have been so fortunate to work with this particular editor who mm-hmm. has been 
a cheerleader on top of somebody who's really prepared to to push this book out and get it as much attention as possible. So. That's awesome. That's so, so great. So what advice do you have for writers who are listening who either are writing a first book, want to go the agent route? Um, you know, you've had ups and downs, you've had all kinds of experiences. And then I might ask you if I'm allowed to ask about subsequent books, next projects and whatever. So we'll get to that. But like, what advice would you give to people listening who, who are like, I've always wanted to write a book or I'm writing a book, but I just don't even know what to do and who, who's ever going to look at me? You know, what chance do I have with uh, how many people want to write a book? It's like what you hear from everybody. I always right. wanted to write a book, you know? I think th there are like two or three things that have been really useful for me. One is there's no one definition of success. Right. And right. that really you need to do it for your own reasons. So like we were talking about, you know, me trying to write a book I wanted to read, I was really wanting to see books with happy endings and mm -hmm. to feel like that's, you know, if I could accomplish that mm -hmm. and get that one person who didn't know me yeah. by it, yes. I was probably doing something that I should do. Awesome. And that changes. I mean, for that time when I was looking for an agent, looking for an agent, that was the goal. That was the goal. And I was literally heartbroken. It's, yes. It was such a hard time. Sure. But at the same time, I think I move on then to the second point, which is just keep showing up. I yeah. mean, there's bad days, good days of writing. There's mm -hmm. stretches where you just need to put stuff away. There's times when you stay up late. And no, that's good. There's mm -hmm. no like structure for the right way to sure. write a book. Yeah. Know? A lot of people are tripped up by, well, I need an hour, I need an afternoon. And I, you know, you, you can take the time you have and do something. You yeah. Know? Everything kind of builds up over time. And then, you know, I think that the third thing is that this is something you're doing not to appeal to a particular publisher or an imaginary reader, or this is what's selling right now or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's really your conversation with yourself sure. in a lot of cases. Yeah. And so use that to kind of craft the world that you would want mm -hmm. and really see that that's valuable. Getting other opinions, readers is, I think, a big part of that process mm -hmm. to just kind of bounce it off others. Sure. Um, yet, you know, just know that this is really you, you putting yourself into a story. Uh -huh. You are doing an autobiographical one or completely whole cloth new stuff. This is your yeah. imprint. Make it something you enjoy doing. Make it yeah. something you really want to be a part of. So with that in mind, I know that a lot of writers have had experiences where they get an agent or they get a publisher and then either one or both want them to rework what they've submitted, like they like it, but yes, do a full edit or do a full revision or change this character or change that or whatever. Like, how do you handle that? You know, how do you, um, if you've written the book you want to write, you've gotten your feedback, your critique group, your beta readers, whatever, you like your agent, you like your editor, but they want significant changes. How do you weather that? How do you like keep going? And, and do you ever say, no, that doesn't work for me? This is a very tragic question. As I was starting the revisions of Love at 350 Degrees, the uh -huh. feedback I got was, you know, the market for most romantic comedies and romances is between 25 and 34. Mm. And your characters are in the 40s. Than, yeah. In the 40s. Mm -hmm. Would you consider changing it to make them younger? Mm -hmm. And to be honest, I'm like, okay, you know, mm -hmm. this is something I certainly care about. I love the characters, but it is my first opportunity to write and get yeah, you know, a larger good. audience, and I'm open to those suggestions. So I did do a rework, and I figured out a way to make the plot work and all this, and mm. I turned it around, and it turned out that the editor 
called and said, you know what, you were right to keep them the ages that they hmm. were. Okay. And so, you know, I appreciated that. Yeah. I think part of it is that you want to look at what is it that is like, I think this is true of critique in general. Mm -hmm. You get that feedback and it helps you clarify what is going to be the most important to you. Mm -hmm. Because for one thing, if you hear it from more than one place, that might be telling you. For sure. Yeah. About, yeah, maybe this is something you need to address. Mm -hmm. But if it's really something fundamentally where they want a different kind of book, mm -hmm. that's not going to change. I think that kind of helps refine down what it is that's super important to you. Yeah. And then you don't need to sweat so much about the smaller stuff. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And if you've got a good editor, as I do, they are, they are, it's a conversation. It's mm -hmm. not a command. Sure. So I think that's also really helpful. Yeah. I heard some agents talking about trends in the industry this year that it used to be like you got your agent, you got your publisher, and that was just like an ongoing relationship. So whatever next projects they wanted you. And I mean, obviously, we don't know what the industry future is going to be, but I heard that it's not a done deal anymore. It's not a guarantee. So like you might have a great publisher that doesn't mean they're going to take your next book or your third book or your fourth or whatever. Do you have any insight or experience into that trend? Or like, you know, is it just sort of one book at a time, see what they want and work with them and one foot in front of the other type of thing? I would say, I, you know, I am really kind of starting this sure. the traditional publishers. So I am just dipping my toe into conversations about what comes next. Yeah. And, you know, I think it depends. Uh, you know, some of this is that I feel a lot of readers are very genre driven mm -hmm. and they want, if they like an author, they would like more of the same yes. or the next, it did, you know, the line two or whatever else. Yeah. And some stories lend themselves to that and some don't. Right. I admire anybody who can write a series of mysteries or a series of anything because they continually can see how that goes forward. And my storytelling tends to be self-contained. Sure. So I think that it's important to just kind of be flexible. Okay. And to, you know, again, if you're sussing out ideas, mm -hmm. let them kind of come at you from wherever. You yeah. Know? And yeah. then you can really focus down on, wait a second, that's one I keep thinking about. If I were flipping a coin between these two, if this one lost and I felt disappointed, I need to go with that one. Yeah. You know? So yeah. it's still, I think it has to be really author driven because yeah. ultimately taste change, mm -hmm. publishers change. Editors move. Editors yeah. move. Mm -hmm. And it's not going to be the same all the time. Mm -hmm. So you just need to really do something you can invest in. Yeah. So as we, the end of our conversation, I wonder what is uh, most exciting to you about this book coming out and this new phase of your author career? I'm in marketing uh -huh. right now. And that's also a bit of a new career for me too. I've always been in communications, but doing the marketing side of stuff is new. Yeah. And so the, my experience over the last two, three years has been good in that I'm very used to working with clients who mm -hmm. have ideas and then come and ask for how those will play out. And no, that's not what I want, you know, and, mm -hmm. and going back and forth. And remember that idea you had at the beginning? Well, that's the one I want to go with. I'm like, <laughs> oh, that's really terrific. So now I'm the client. Yeah. And that is the most wiggy thing about this whole thing. Are you a good client or are you a pain in the ass client? I am an excellent client. <laughs> Love it. Excellent. <laughs> I have learned from my experience. But, you know, the, the, 
the notion of what it is to have a book in these days mm-hmm. and to market a book and to reach people is different than it was three years ago. Sure. So I'm sure that a lot of people got their book addiction because they had little else they could do yes. while everybody was inside. Yeah. And so that's continuing to play out. And that's, you know, different than my good friend's experience when she was doing books, you know, 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. That's different than when I was trying to hawk my first book 10 sure. years ago. Sure. So learning all that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, kind of reminding myself that, yeah, this is... You know, it's not so much uh, imposter syndrome, just uh-huh. kind of a sense of, hmm, if they really read the book closely, will they still want to put, you know, all yeah. this energy behind it? And yeah. like, yeah, yeah, they do. And that's good. Mm-hmm. So, well, it's because it's a phenomenal book. Um, well, thank you for Yes, I'm super excited for it to come out. I love that I have an early copy, but I will buy copies to give to people. And I encourage everybody who's listening to go buy a copy of Love at 350 Degrees and check out Lisa Pierce with all of your links in the show notes. But I'm really excited to have you on the Make Meaning podcast. Well, I have been thrilled to be here. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Make Meaning podcast with Lynn Galadner. You can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you like what you've heard, subscribe and share this episode with the meaningful people in your world. And please leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform. You can learn more at makemeaning.org or lynngaladner.com.